thank you for coming onto the podcast. Are we recording? We're that? recording. Okay. Um, <laughs> the red light? Just sneaky, sneaky. It's um, I'm, I'm so glad that we've got you on. Um, for anyone that doesn't know the voice already, it's we've got the wonderful Suda Butcher, who is, was, will continue to be one of the pioneers of Asian theatre oh in this God, country. Oh, God, Amy, you're doing this pioneer <laughs> stuff, you know. Do you not like it? Uh, no, but well, I... The thing is, sometimes these days, it can mean like, oh, you're the pioneer, let's put you on the shelf to gather dust, you know. Not that you're doing that. But. <laughs> no, we're certainly not. Yeah, we're literally like dying you know to come I mean. and see your show. No, yeah, absolutely not. You... Sorry, we should start again. I didn't mean no, to. No, no, <laughs> no. No, let's... <laughs> that was bad. That was pretty good. No, I not, not even slightly. I, I, I loved it, actually, because, you know... Because it, it does happen, you know, where people kind of go, oh, okay. What do you associate with the word pioneer? Like, what does it mean to you? Well, obviously, you know, we were inadvertent pioneers. You know, I didn't look in the mirror in my 20s and go, I'm going to be a pioneer, mm. you know. I just kind of did, like you guys were talking, things were not happening, so what can we do? It really started from Christine and my friendship, you know, Tamasha, and then Shaheen and my friendship starting to write because we weren't getting parts as young people. And then things gathered like a snowball and you started to form a company and then brought other people along and then yeah people go you're a pioneer you know you um you said in in an interview that um you're very much an accidental theater maker definitely yeah. so my, my question is actually what do you think you would be doing if you didn't fall into theater do you know i really don't know because we had quite a turbulent childhood where we'd go from africa to india to africa to india then norfolk london so it's not like as a child I had any sense of what I wanted to do. I was very shy, um, very academic, like in the sense I could study. And so I just stumbled through things. And then when I was at uh, school doing my A-levels, my sister came across Tara. We met them at a Diwali function. Um, and they were like, yeah, come along. She wanted to be an actor, <laughs> not me. I used to just follow her. So I kind of followed her while I was doing my A-levels. So I ended up doing maths and sociology at university. Meanwhile, going to Dara, you know, mm -hmm. and then slowly getting on stage. When you were doing your A-levels or, and then when you did your degree, did you think you'd probably end up in a, maybe a city job or something like no, that? I really Not had even. no plans, honest to God. One thing I do remember, because I did, I did, and you know, I went to a school where the careers people would sort of say, to girls be a secretary or a librarian. But we had a wonderful maths teacher who encouraged me to do not just maths, but further maths, me and a couple of other girls. So you ended up pushing yourself a bit. And I had a place at Imperial College to do maths. And I remember getting my results in India. We were in India for a holiday and thinking, I do not wish to go to Imperial College. Not knowing why, but just knowing really strongly that I didn't want to do maths at Imperial College. So I turned it down came back, went through clearing. Yes. And did maths and sociology at Roehampton Institute. Did you, once you got to Roehampton, did you think, oh, maybe I should have gone to Imperial or were you were completely, you were fine at Roehampton? It's only now that I was reminded that I made such a major decision at the age of 18, not knowing why I made that decision. What do you remember of your thought process being? Just a strong feeling that I didn't want to be at Imperial doing maths. It just, that That's institution didn't feel right. It was more... Just that and doing maths on okay. its own just didn't feel right. Your taxes must be solid every year. 
My tax, they are really not. Yeah. <laughs> Is your math skills still? No. Right, no. <laughs> My kids are amazed that I'm numerate. Okay. Like more numerate than them. Yeah. Because I've forgotten differentiation. I've forgotten everything. I couldn't even help them with their GCSE. But when we have a chat about, you know, percentage this and how much work it out, and now I do it quicker than them, they're like, oh, mom, oh, <laughs> you, you, you're numerate. How is that? <laughs> you, uh, you mentioned you were in Africa. Whereabouts? Uh, I was born in Tanzania. Mm-hmm. And then you... In Tanga, Tanzania. You went to India then and then UK? My father was a teacher, so he was recruited from India. And every three years he'd get a passage back home. So we'd often oh. go by ship actually, 12 days from Tanzania to Bombay. And then my parents would have this kind of, where shall we settle? You know, he'd leave us there, go back to Africa. They just couldn't decide where to settle. Hmm. And meanwhile, it was the last chance to get his British passport. So like a lot, of, and Uganda had happened was happening. So there was all this kind of feeling of uncertainty. So we came here in 74 mm-hmm. when we had British passports by virtue of the colonial sort of um, legacy. Yeah. And where did you settle? Well, we spent the first year in uh, Kings Lynn in Norfolk because my mother's brother was there. You know, we came here with nothing. So we stayed with them very generously. And then my father, meanwhile, finished his teaching, came here, then we were in in London, in Putney for a while, for quite a long while, Mm -hmm. and then Tooting. How old are you at this point? I was 11 when I came here. Okay. So you sort of did those formative years? Yeah, but but, you know, so many different schools, Africa, India, Africa, India, and in the last nine months before getting our passports, we hung around in the backyard in Africa. We didn't even go to school. And then we came to Norfolk, and I remember being assessed and because I said, what do you read? I said, Enid Blyton in an accent. And he was like, you mean Enid Blyton? You know, and they put us in um, secondary modern school. And like five months later, they were like, you're too clever to be here. You need to be in the grammar school. And then the grammar school were like, mm, you can't just come in here. They made us repeat a year. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And then we came to London and they were just went by our age. So in a way, I've done... The equivalent of year seven twice, haven't done year eight, <laughs> then moved straight to year nine. It's all a bit choppy. How did you, because Amrita, you can account for this in terms of the moving around a lot. Was that quite a difficult process? Did you? Were you I used found to it, it very difficult emotionally, I must admit. My old sister found it an adventure. You know, like I think different kids deal with it. But then it's become the storehouse of the work I make. So I'm very grateful for it now, but obviously as a child... What was your first impression of England when you arrived? What were your first memories of being here? I mean, it was cold. It was January. We'd come from Africa to Norfolk. And we were the only brown people in the school, non-white. So kids asked us, did you live in mud huts? Did you go on elephants? Did you live in mud huts? But we didn't even feel that was prejudice, you know, because it was ignorance. But I think the harshest things... And now you guys use the terms like microaggressions and all that. We had so many of that. Mm. Things like being made to go and run in shorts cross-country in January and then have communal showers naked, which I now look back and go, oh, my God, I was 11. And you come from a culture of, like, sharam and covering up. And and honestly, they just, no, you need to strip down and go in the showers with everyone. And you're the brown person. Those kind of things now, yeah, you go, wow, gosh, we went through all that, you know. Mm. Wow. And then you you did your degree and then was it during that time you were 
you sort of you met Jatinder and and yeah, we met Jatinder, Masuman and my sister and me. We met him at a Diwali function, and they were performing these sketches at a Hindu Diwali function. But they were quite provocative sketches, asking the elders to think about religion and all that. We loved it, and my sister went up to them afterwards, and they were like, "Yeah, we meet every Wednesday. Come along." So I kind of followed her, and there was I used to just sit and sell the tickets, and you know we performed at weekends. And I remember this one day when one of the girls didn't turn up, <laughs> and Jatinder said, "Right, you're playing the policewoman." I said, "No, I'm not going on stage." And yes, you are. So he gave me a notebook. The policewoman had a couple of questions to ask. I had to go on stage, and then I walked off the wrong way, couldn't get off stage. <laughs> Everyone laughed at me. It was sort of started like that. And, and meanwhile, my sister decided she didn't want to act, and I got more into it, you know. Wow. So it was very slow, cumulative, and all this was happening then while I did my degree. And Tara became more like bigger. It went from a community company to a professional company. So at one point, they had a professional wing as well as a community wing. I remember you um, when we first met many years ago um, and worked together. You, you know, you used to talk about those days where you were very much almost a traveling theater company. You guys would all pack up your cars and, and oh God, yeah, take yeah, everything absolutely. with you. Like, tell us about those experiences because I think the thought of that now is, I think for a lot of actors who come through, a lot of that's done. I mean, we did so much of that. And in some ways I'm still doing that because I've got that background. So yeah, we used to, first of all, while I was doing my degree, so it was a community group, you'd carry the set in the van. We would do push and pull really heavy sets sometimes and we'd just be at weekends and then when I graduated it was kind of natural to go into that professionally again with no plan in mind other than oh Jatinder's doing another play you know and then he actually wanted like a permanent acting company like a rep thing so we did that for a year I had like a year's contract but all, all of our work was touring traveling where the actors did the get in get out push pull striking afterwards so who was sort of can, is there any how was the community at that point in terms of south asian actors south asian performers generally was it quite a small like you know we can sit here now and and we probably have so many um friends in common and people we know in the industry back then that must have been even smaller so was it very much it was very much like you knew everyone there was the older generation to us who you looked up to the Jamila Masis and Charu Balachoksis and Joshi, you know. So, but every time there was an Asian play on or a film at the NFT, we'd all meet each other because it was such an event. So the Satyajit Ray movies, you know, everyone would be there or there's play at the Royal Court, everyone would be there. So there wasn't like the choice that you have now. Because hmm. we had um, we had Nitin Soni on the, on the podcast and he was talking about his early days of... Yeah sketchwork with Sanjeev and and was that were you guys sort of I mean we were quite contemporaries you know yeah. but um our paths didn't cross like hugely at the time I think they came a bit after us mm -hmm. like age-wise but it was wonderful to collab you know Nitin um, did the score for our um partition thing that opened the 50th anniversary Edinburgh International Festival mm -hmm. which was called a tainted dawn so he did the music for that and that was at the time it was 97 when he was just taking off as well. Hmm. So, yeah. So then I guess, you know, we, we can't 
ignore the change that was Tamasha Theatre Company. For me especially, it was it was when I joined the industry and I was trying to look at ways to get in for someone who didn't go to drama school. I, I didn't know where to start and I think I googled some stuff and Tamasha came up and I think I, I wrote to you guys and I think you were holding some workshops and, and I very much got in through there. So tell us a little bit about how that came about. You were saying you and Christine were me friends Christine first? actually met at Dara. Oh, you met at Tara, okay. Yeah. So she was an actor. Um, so she auditioned for a show called The Broken Thigh, which is an episode in the Mahabharat, uh, really showing how making you question, are the goodies really the goodies? So I don't know if you know the story, but the Pandava brothers, who are the sort of good brothers, <laughs> fighting their cousins. And I played the baddie, Duryodhana. But, you know, what it sort of shows you is an episode in the Mahabharat where the good people win the war through bad actions, hence the title, The Broken Thigh. I'm really reducing it. But so Christine and I played the warriors, yeah, Karna and Duryodhana. We became friends. And then she went to Delhi to teach. She was supposed to be doing Chekhov. And on the plane, she read a book called um, Untouchable, Mulkraj Anand's book about a day in the life of a sweeper boy in the 30s. So when she came back, she did this wonderful improvised show with the second year students at the National School of Drama in Delhi. So she came back, showed me the video, and it was all this village in the round, a sweeper boy, a day in the life of. And we just kind of said, oh, let's do it here. So we set up Damasha really in order to do that, not thinking beyond. You know, this was my pattern of not thinking beyond, but things accumulating slowly. So we did a reading at Tara. And then uh, we did a, you know, a huge sort of studio at the Riverside Studios. We ripped it up and made a village in the round. And that was Tamasha's debut, you know. And what was the thing about it is we did one night in Hindi, one night in English. Uh -huh. So the same cast had to be, you know, young and bilingual. People like Ronnie Jati were in that cast, Ajay Chabra, Charubala Choksi, yeah. And after that, Philip Headley from Theatre Royal Stratford East said, oh, this was great. What can you do for us? You know, and a lot of it was to do with we have these constituencies on our doorstep and we don't know what to give them in terms of culture. So you were audience developers and theatre makers. How did you go about choosing the kind of writings or adaptations you wanted to put on stage? You know, most things at the beginning happen quite by organically and by accident. So mm -hmm. after Untouchable, we were reading this thing called House of the Sun, which was about the Sindhis in Bombay, set in a block of flats, which we really loved. And because it was in one setting. And meanwhile, my brother was involved with a Sindhi girl and you found out all about their community and how they have no homeland because all of Sindh went to Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Matching the stories with the novel, we put that on. And then Women of the Dust came out again because Oxfam had given us some money for Untouchable. We were talking about the casteism and inequalities, and then it was their, I can't remember, I think 50th anniversary or something, and they wanted to do something. And I don't know if you know the photographer Sunil Gupta, but he, I went to his house and I saw these pictures of these women, Rajasthani women breaking stones, making roads, and I instantly thought, hmm, that's the show, hmm. Women of the Dust came from that. So it's sort of like that, you know, initially. And was it always quite clear in terms of, because you were very much an actor and Christine, did she, how did she find a way into directing? And then because you guys sort of found your places in that, didn't you? I think, yeah, she had already before we, you know, Untouchable, she direct, she had already started to feel like she was more of a director. I mean, she was a great actor, but she very early decided to 
not act. Mm. So, yeah, it was very much like those early shows were like, there has to be a part in it for me and you're going to direct. <laughs> you know, we had no funding to pay ourselves. Sure. You know, we'd probably go out for dinner. We'd do weeks of work and say, okay, we deserve a dinner. And then you'd fundraise and for the, for the actual show. Um, and then I think six or seven years of that, the Arts Council did say to us, like, mm, you know, your company's significant. Do you want to apply for full-time funding? And initially we said, no, <laughs> we don't actually because we don't want to do this full-time. But after East is East, because we did East is East on this project-to-project -project basis. Mm. We were not a full-time company then. So it was, yeah, it was a, few, a couple of years after East is East that we thought, hmm, this is bigger than we had realized. Let's, you know, let's put some... How did um how did East Disease come to you guys? Well, East Disease, I mean, I again, I met Ayub at um, Tara mm -hmm. as an actor. So we had met on a show called The Little Clay Cart. And he'd always said, oh, I've got these scenes, I'm writing about my family. And when we were there at Tara, he won some competition or something at Albany Empire. And he got to read his scenes. I actually read Mina. So I was the first Mina. <laughs> um, so we read that. And then years later, when Tamasha was doing some workshops with the Royal Court, I, I invited him to come as a writer. And he said that he was so disheartened by East Disease because it had been turned down by everyone that he didn't want to bring that to the workshop. So he gave me this other script about all these tourist murderers on a Goa beach. And I read it. It was called Acha. And I read it and I said, mm, no, Ayub, you need to get East Diseased out. And he was very reluctant, but then he got East Diseased out. He came to the workshop and, of course, we all went, this needs to be commissioned, you know. Well, why we did do, that why do you think it became such a success, that one in particular? I think, um, I think it was very personal. So it had that lived experience. And obviously, as a writer and as a person, he's very funny and engaging and that's really captured in the dialogue and the relationships it's you know it comes from his life and I think there are many many people who lived on that kind of clash of cultures in a family mixed relationships it's a very well done northern comedy on one hand as well you know so it appeals quite broadly I think that's what gave it its magic in a way you know was it very much a snowball effect in terms of how quickly that took oh, off? Oh, East is East, absolutely. Again, the Royal Court took some convincing to be partners. And even then, they gave us the studio. And I remember saying to them, we're going to sell out before we open. Because at that time, the studio was 60 seats in the West End because the Royal Court was being refurbished. And of course, we sold out, you know, almost before we opened. Well, we opened first at Birmingham Rep. And in literally the first night... Bill Alexander, Tony Clark, who were the directors at the rep, and we just looked at it and said, "Okay, this is, this is going to go and go," you know. Did they move it to the main stage? No. No, they didn't <laughs> move it to the main stage. We were sold out, and in fact, Philip Headley, I went to see Philip Headley, and literally on the back of a tissue paper, we sat in his flat and said, "This, this, this." Oh, oh yeah, you know, five week run at the Theatre Royal Stratfordies, shook on it. And it was sold out at Theatre Royal Stratford East. That's when the Royal Court went, hmm, okay, we'll have it in the West End. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so then they had it for like eight months or something, you know. And was that from your what you can remember in terms of the appetite from the audience? Was it quite a mixed crowd? Was it very much? It was quite a mixed crowd, yeah, very much. 
and just people just loved it of all ages as well. Lots so you of young see, people could relate to it. You yeah, know? you could see the appetite was there for Definitely. South Asian stories. and. But even before that, you know, the stuff yeah. that we'd done. In those days, we would use the word crossed over. You know, obviously now you go, why do you need to cross over? You know, but of course, at the time, it was always about how do you cross over so you can appeal to the mainstream? Hmm. Um so that was the one of the ones. I mean, and it definitely then it became a film. People were really vying for the rights. So all of that happened quite quickly for him. Did you guys have a hand in that for no, the film? No, no, no okay. No. We have a little credit at the end. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we're not filmmakers. Sure. Um, but he had quite a few people wanting to make it into a film. Hmm. And I think that's kind of happened really fast. And then it was a box office smash. You know, it kind of paved the way for things like Bendik, like Beck, where people actually going, okay, our stories can make some money as well. Yeah, I'd sort of say the sort of spine on a very surface level anyway is, is from my understanding, is, is very much yours East is East, Bendik like Beckham, Slumdog, and then obviously yeah, it opened yeah, up a yeah, whole exactly. different international market. How do you feel the landscape of theatre has developed since kind of your early days in it? Uh, up to now? I mean, it seems to be really, really burgeoning. You know, um, obviously, there are companies like Kali that existed since then as well. Um, there was Rifco came out as well. And lots and lots of artists self-curating, including myself. You know, I mean, I set up Butcher Boulevard in 2015, mainly as a kind of place for my work, but my work very much interfacing with collaboration, communities, co-creation so I think there's a lot of artists as well doing their own work through grants and through producing themselves yeah. is there any part of you that feels like oh you wish maybe Tamasha was around in terms of what you and Christine were doing um, that version of Tamasha do you think is there any part of you that wishes maybe you would have liked to have maybe started that later in terms of what you see now in the landscape I mean the thing is we are the age we are and this is where when you said pioneers I just wish I could just own it and sure. not have the other side of it which is where people do sort of go mm, you're pioneer you know you and also people erase yeah you know, I mean I'm being honest here like there's erasure so now, because all the things are burgeoning, people want to almost go, oh, this started five years ago with diversity is really, whereas before, it, it's a way like, it's almost like not talked about. Like that work never happened. Yeah, almost. like it never happened. Yeah. Yeah. It can be like that. And I'm finding that now, you know, ageism you and just a kind of, oh, yeah, you guys did it to that scale. But actually, you know, we did it to a scale that still hasn't been matched. 100%. You know what I mean? Like, we were at main stages. We did open the Edinburgh International Festival twice. We have filled, you know, 1,000 seaters. Like, okay, how did that suddenly become like that never happened, you know? Yeah. So you definitely don't come across as a person who wants to sit on a shelf and collect dust. How do you make sure that, I suppose, you maintain your presence and, you know, don't let ageism get to you? And how do you I navigate mean, it is very how it tough. Is? I'm always self working like in a way what I call my DIY career so Butcher Boulevard became like I, I wanted to revive my play Child of the Divide for 2017 so I did that and and curated it um, in a way where you could have a conversation with academics senior clergy interfaith relation and then we went to Toronto with that I'm doing um, really interesting work with communities, um, like I did the project called Touchstone Tales during COVID around the theme of touch, you know, which was funded by Welcome Collection and Revoluton Arts. 
then I'm doing my one woman thing. Yeah. You know, in a way, I feel like I'm going right back to that, but I don't want to carry the heavy set. Yeah. So yeah. I'm literally myself. There's no set with my little suitcase and my conversations with my sons. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Because um, am I right in understanding that your sons are dual heritage? Yes. And it's kind of inspired by them as well. I'd love to. It's totally inspired by them. Yeah. I mean, I'm an Indian heritage from East Africa. My husband's a Pakistani heritage. And neither of us are deeply religious. So it's not like they've been brought up in one thing or another. And I mean, both, in fact, Child of the Divide was partly inspired by them because they do ask, you know, like, who are they? And and then as they were growing older, I just found that I was having really interesting and witty conversations with them, you know, their repartee. And my older son's name is Summer, mm. which means evening conversations. Oh. And I used to say to him, oh, I'm just going to write that down because he'd just be like, Mom, can't we just talk? You always want to, you know, take our dialogue. <laughs> and then so I just started collecting those. And again, like everything in my life, by accident, the Sumpard um, organization, Piali Rai, at MAC in Birmingham, said to me, there's one night, we want you to come and do something, but we've got tiny budget, you know, can you do a play reading? And I looked at it and said, Piali, this won't pay even the, you know, fares of five actors. She said, no, no, but you've got to do something. So I said, okay, I've been meaning to try out this kind of conversations. Let's call it evening conversation. So it went in the brochure before I even knew what I was going to do. And then I went there and did this cobbled together thing with 60 Asian women and they loved it. And then I've just done it really gently. One show here, one show there. <laughs> Ten performances over three years because COVID happened. What well. do you think the message of the conversation is, like the one woman show itself? Uh, I mean, I don't, I'm never really not sure what the message is, but I guess it is about like intergenerational dialogue mothers and sons and resilient in some way resilient like in a way I am actually saying I'm fragile I this is how I look after myself and it's okay to say that you went through stuff mm. and that your kids are talking to you and you know it's it's kind of about whose generation is better off and they'll be like yeah well mom you guys you know had this 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 you got paid to go uni you know so, well <laughs> yeah but I came here with my anorak in the cold and what about you 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 know yeah but this and this you know happiness equals the gap between expectation of life and you know how it turns out your expectation was shit so it turned out all right so you're happy mom you know <laughs> so I just found all these kinds these of are, these are amazing dinner dinner, yeah. Yeah. dinner uh, table stories and I think what I like about it is that it just it's in a way it's not a show it's not stand up it can't be it's just me so it's my offering as the person I am my age saying okay I go up for parts that are called mum with no name so here is me as a mum mm. with a name <laughs> if you like and you've said when you, when you've um performed it in the past that you found that there's different generations it appeals to it's not just people of your generation. I mean, it's a show that I've performed 10 times, as I said, in places like Birmingham to mm -hmm. Asian women who really appeal to Wimbledon Book Fest to a sort of book festival audience, uh, a community centre in Luton as I was doing my touch project, then the WOW Festival in South Bank where it was mainly white women, mm. then recently at the Asian Film Festival at Rich Mix where it was a very mixed crowd. So I kind of feel like it can appeal to, you know, I can't promise that it'll be sold out. And, you know, I'm really, I'm really sort of nervous about it. When is it? So you'll be at the Soho Theatre? I'll be, yeah, I'm at Waterman's on the 30th of September. Then I'm at um, Oxford Playhouse Studio on the 3rd of October. 
and then I'm doing a two-week run at Soho Theatre downstairs in their sort of cabaret space, which used to be Café Lazis, for yes. those of us who remember, uh, from the 31st of October for two weeks. Nice. So you guys have to come. Absolutely. Definitely. Do you feel like it's going to be quite kind of, I don't know if emotional is the right word, but when we were talking before we started recording, you mentioned that this is a space you guys used to fill, Estamasha. And I was just curious about how you feel about going back into that space and filling it with just you. It's a really good point. I'm I'm very nervous, a big sort of, and also inviting press. Because yeah. actually I, I sort of deliberately said this is for me. It's my relationship with my sons and it's for my relationship with who I'm talking to in the room. And then now I'm asking it to be seen as a show, you know. Mm. I have had the odd press, but it was impromptu, not, you know. And yes, I think uh, this is going back to Soho, which was a place that we filled many times, you know, with a show called All I Want is a British Passport. Nadim Sawala doing a one-man show about Mohammed Al-Fayed. And then a show called The Trouble with Asian Men which just kept being revived and, you know, another show called Ryman and the Shake. So there was a time when you were just like, oh, a Tamasha show, it's going to sell. So it does feel a bit like, a, oh, oh. But then everywhere I go now, there are places I've been before. Mm. You know, I walk into so many spaces where I go, oh, God, it's as if we were never here. You know, you were talking about yeah. House of Bilkis Bibi. You know, being at Hampstead Theatre, there's not even a photograph. Mm. And we did like a fine balance Rohinton Mysteries book sold yeah. out twice. Like, where's a picture even? Mm, yeah. So at times it does feel like, okay, we're sort of, one of our ventures, Butcher Boulevard, is called Retracing Our Footsteps because we're very passionate about Suman, my sister, who works with me as an associate. She's very passionate about archiving and looking back and making sure the storehouse of stuff, not just our work, but she's got 100 years of Asian history, theatre history. So, yeah, it does feel a bit like one... And some that's to do with age as well, you know. You know, I, I, I was 60 a few months ago. And it's Congratulations. Not, it's not a kind of, like, uh, melancholy alone, although I am a bit of a melancholic. But there is a kind of, okay, everywhere you go, you have been before, you know. You've touched on aspects of age and, you know, having filled spaces before and, and you know, that sense of... Um, maybe being forgotten in, in certain aspects. I'm curious to know what your relationship is like with the industry now. It's been really nice that in my 50s, mid-50s, I'm doing film, which I hadn't done before, to work on things like Mughal Mowgli, you know, with Riz Ahmed and then The Long Goodbye. And then I've also done a film, which I'm really proud of, which is called Into Dust, um, which is um, Orlando von Eisendale, and it's grain media. And it's the true story of... Pakistani activist Parveen Rahman, which is on YouTube as a true story. And it's talking about kind of activism and the crisis of water. And I've done a few couple of short films, you know, with Hitan Patel, who's a lovely artist. And I've managed to use my languages. So I've done Urdu, Punjabi, even Gujarati for Hitan Patel. And I feel like, okay, there is also a climate where people want to, where you can bring your full self they're sort of sporadic jobs. And then last year I did have a nice guest appearance in a Amazon Prime thing called Expats, which hasn't come out yet. Um, but I find that it's never, like, actually, it's it's so sporadic that it's still, I do sit here and go, what next? You know, like, actually how I'm going to pay the bills on a very yeah. basic level. Yeah. You know, I need to work and pay bills. And I can't see how that happens 
in an integrated way. You know? I wonder if that will, it's maybe it's almost just an actor's mentality, whether that something like that ever goes away, regardless of maybe the heights. Yeah, but it isn't just that. It's actually very real. Agreed. Yeah. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. There's an actor mentality and then there's a kind of real, okay. The energy what prices next? are going yeah, up. Yeah, you know, what gonna... next? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like the things I do in my DIY career aren't always the things that... And but also I'm you know I am self like I do believe in I like my passion project so I'm actually doing an adaptation of Sita Brahmachari's book Artichoke Hearts mm-hmm. I mean she's someone you should talk to this is her debut novel which she wrote in 2011 which won the Waterstones best novel for young people and then she that's launched her career and she's gone on to write a huge amount for young people mainly um, so I'm really excited about that but you know I'm doing that as Butcher Boulevard. So I have to get partners and all of that. <laughs> What's your um, vision for Butcher Boulevard? Where do you kind of want to see it go? Oh, God, my sister's always asking me that. You know? <laughs> I, I mean, I just, you know, I see it as a place for, I, I sort of don't, you know, I did Tamasha and that's still carrying on. In a way, I, it's not like I want to run and produce a company that gets bigger and bigger, but I do want us to to do significant work in partnership with, venues and organizations and also do the archive yeah I, I see it as a place for passion projects it also sounds a bit like a place for preservation as well yeah renewal reflection and I really love theater that isn't necessarily in big spaces as you know like the touch project I was telling you about the welcome collection in radio 4 launched a test studying the theme of touch and at the same time they invited artist response and I got one of those commissions so I was discussing the theme of touch with communities in Luton, and then it became COVID, so it became a kind of absence of touch. And it was really poignant to be doing this during 2020. And I wrote these monologues and a duologue, and together they formed the story of a community called Touchstone Tales. We did them on Zoom, and they're also audio podcasts. So they now sit on our website, and I really want people to watch them and and listen to them because it felt like very significant work but it's not on a kind of vi- highly visible stage you know? I know you're a person that I love the fact that you've said so much has happened by accident and you kind of just go with the flow of whatever's happening but is there any um, part of you creatively that you feel hasn't been fulfilled yet? Well I definitely don't feel like I get used as an actor to the level that I can mm-hmm. I mean I worked out last year you know, you call yourself an actor, playwright, and I probably spent less than 15 days acting. And this year so far, I've worked out three, four, I've spent six days acting. That's not right. I've had two self-tapes this year. It just doesn't feel right, you know? Mm. I don't think our generation is being used to our um, potential. And then it's quite disturbing to hear conversations as if diversity and stories are only just being discovered by young people, you know, in isolation to what has come before. You spoke about um, writing very much um, coming through frustration. In the beginning. In the beginning. Yeah. And and actually, I must mention, you know, I have a lovely project that I did with Tara, in fact, coming full circle, because Jatin the left and then Abdul, who's Abdul Shaikh, who's the new artistic director, he commissioned me for his first piece of work which was called Final Farewell. And it was, a lot of my work is based on real testimonies. And this was about people sharing their stories of loss during COVID. 
So people came and they talked about people they'd lost, and in one instance, a dog. And through that verbatim, I wrote the deceased in the first person. And it was an audio theatre piece with an installation in the in the theatre. So I feel like my everything I've done is sort of work that is significant and important to me. But I haven't done sort of commercial writing. You know? Is there any particular roles, I suppose, or types of roles or types of shows or films or theatre projects that you'd want to be part of? I'd really want, like I said to you before, I think when we were talking, that so many things I've done recently where the character's literally called mum. Mm-hmm. So I would love to see Asian women my age being rounded characters with rich internal lives, having quirky individual stories, not just being mums who descend with Tupperware to serve their kids and the story is centered around the kid. You know, it is great to see that there's a lot of work now where people your age are like carrying. So I was in a show called Rules of the Game where Rocky Takrar was very central and mm. I played a mom. So it's really great that that's happening. But can you ever imagine an older person being central? I guess I can imagine it, whether the production like, company oh, and the oh, TV yeah, channel yeah, would, yes, is a different story. I mean, look at the, story. you know, Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Yeah full of white Buddhas. I mean, not that I'm a Buddha Buddha, but you know what I mean? <laughs> hmm. I just want to have, it's not like there's a part I want to play or this I no, want no. to do. Yeah. It's nothing like that. It's more like, how can I just bring everything that you're about to something? Is that conversations you've maybe had with theatre companies or is, is there anything that, is it something you're maybe even writing yourself and think, all right, well, let me try and create something and cultivate something. Well, I guess, I mean, evening conversations isn't like a part. It's it's just sharing me. Yeah. So it's not like saying, oh, look at me, I can act. But it's kind of sharing that conversation in a way. Just um, slightly pivoting away because you were talking about um, self-tapes and auditioning. I'd love to know your thoughts on uh, once you started acting to where it is now and, and the idea of self-tapes. Absolutely hate them. Not a fan. Absolutely hate them. I shouldn't say that because it's probably why I'm not getting it. <laughs> um, no, my friend Shaheen Khan, she calls them self-harm tapes. And I think that. But I know young people love them because they feel like they can control. Partly the, te- the technology. You know, I can't do a self-tape on my own. And my poor husband during lockdown, I mean, honestly, he's not even an actor. And I just remember doing this, the recall for expats and we had my um, ironing board on top of that, these boxes of mangoes and then my laptop, just so I could find a piece of the kitchen wall that wasn't falling, like the wallpaper falling off and just not the way to do things, is it? Hmm. And also people don't ask you what you've been doing or they're not interested, they're just interested in. Like I tell people, like I tell my agent to, can you get people to watch, you know, Into Dust? Because that shows, you can just Google it, it's on YouTube. It's essentially a showreel, uh, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, like I've got a big part in that. It's a really important story. You, no, darling. Yes, I can send them the link, but they won't watch it. They just want to watch your self-tape. And then you do what I really hate, and I don't know if this happens to you guys, but where I hate it when they go, oh, this person could be anyone. They could be any so race, specific. anything. Yeah. And then I just know I'm not going to get that job. And you have to self-tape five scenes. I'd rather people say, we're actually looking for a black actor. So please don't bother. Or, you know, and then you'll get a reply saying after it could be anyone. Oh, no, no, they were very specific about what they wanted. Well, then I didn't fit that specific. So don't ask me to self-tape. I don't know how you feel about that. You I think know? I get a similar feeling yeah. when I get that. 
I suppose I have learned from experience that that's not always the case. And sometimes on a few occasions, it is the best actor for the role. But I think it takes a very open mind. And I do often feel, as I'm sure you do, that actually their minds are already made up about what they I don't want. know about yeah. this best actor for the role stuff, you see. Especially contemporary things. People are writing. You're not colorblind. You write best roles when you've got people cultural mm. specificity in mind, hopefully, but maybe not, you know? I think it's um, important to say very much now that the work you've done, people like Shaheen, Tamasha Tara, everyone has very much laid the groundwork for the generation now that are coming through, the Amritas, the Anjali's, the Mandips, who are, you know, really taking the ball by the horns and, and, and hopefully trying to take the art to the next level in terms of visibility and being able to play varied roles. How do you feel when you sort of see that? You said you worked with Raki and she was very much a central role in that show. I watched it as well um, and she did fantastically. How is it just maybe just seeing that take place? No, I mean, it's really great to see that take place. Of course it is, you know, and it's just fantastic that people are being valued for their individual talent and what they can bring to something. But I think it's, yeah, I think it's just, what does the next level mean? Does that mean that people like us who've paved the way? So what, we have nothing else to offer. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. I do think that, that that is where ageism comes in. You sure. Know? Because I watch things that, you know, Emma Thompson does or Meryl Streep, you know, like quirky stories about older women who have like, uh, who can be the central character. Or, or even when they're supporting their kids, not every Asian woman can cook makes great dal or brings Tupperware. You know what I mean? It's like, let's also mine what they could be and how yeah. they I guess it's going back to what you said about yeah. maybe it's not about the best actor for the role, but actually making, writing a role that is for that actor or that kind of Yeah, or just being, just being a bit more like looking beyond the label of Mrs. K, Mrs. J, mum. You know, mm -hmm. every Asian mum is not interchangeable, are they? Every Asian... No lady is not a mum. No, exactly <laughs> yeah. that as well. Exactly. I know plenty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I think I don't feel like any less being older, but I think it's how people view, can view you, you know, so you've got to. I think it's also having people in those positions that are creators and that write those kind of roles until they are the people that they're writing the roles for, if that makes sense. I think it's always going to be a bit difficult if it's not Yeah, I mean, I think I don't, I don't like to be on the back foot mm. and um, I'll always do my stuff somewhere. And hopefully the stuff that one has done in film, people are also valuing the languages. And so there are people our age who speak the languages as well. Are you someone who, when you're on set, and because, you know, you're, you come with such a wealth of experience and very much have your... Um, take on you know not wanting to be ignored and through ageism and things like when you're on set are you quite vocal in terms of challenging when when things aren't right maybe you know i've been on sets where it's as basic as the name is is not like it's maybe like an indian name with a maybe like a pakistani surname and it's that's not clear in the character in terms of them being dual heritage but they've done they've made these basic yeah mistakes. i think it's very important to yeah. challenge those things yeah i mean obviously you have to gauge the <laughs> You know, the room, yeah. where you'll be heard and where. But I, yeah, I mean, I'm not passive, um, but I also have to gauge, you know, what is the battle that can be won. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an I mean, with the rules of the game, I remember having a conversation because I got offered that and 
about uh, having a slight Gujarati accent. Because most women who in their 50s, as far as, like, we did that show called Strictly Done, you know, like, people you interview, they have a slight Gujarati accent. That was a great play. Yeah, thank you. Um, but I And I wanted to do that, so I did my self-tape in the versions that was with a slight Gujarati and also, you know, just being neutral. And I did remember talking to the producer and him saying, mm, now we just want you to speak in your voice, in your own voice. And I went, yeah, okay, but, like, that is my voice as well. Mm. But it was like the, it couldn't be taken further. But then I was on set and I did the odd Gujarati and the director was fine with it. So you you find ways of putting things in. You've um you've spoken about um very much not being a director, so that's not a path that you've necessarily so that you've ever wanted to take. Actor, writer, I feel like whether you say it or not, you're you're very much a producer. You cultivate well, your own work. Well, I have produced you, you a lot. Produce yeah, so it's not something I want to do necessarily, but I, I produced my own work, and I, obviously at Demasha we produced everything. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have aspirations to continue to do that? or Because I get a sense sometimes you're just like, you feel as though I, I just want to be an actor with a good role and not have to, like you said, carry that backpack. On I would love that, yeah. I mean, it's not something that I aspire to do. Yeah, I do it out of necessity. And often, like, you'll be commissioned to do something and then you'll see, you find yourself interfering because... You look at the <laughs> the website copy and you go, that doesn't reflect what I'm actually doing, you know, and then you find yeah. yourself contributing in other ways. Um, and things like just, for instance, like East is East had a 25th anniversary production at Birmingham Rep. And, you know, we sort of found out that they were trying to sort of say, it's a Birmingham Rep, it's coming home. And I had to go... Mm, hang on, what about Tamashi? Like, how did this actually happen? And then you find yourself, because people don't know even. So then I challenged that, and then I I wrote a piece in the program about East is East and how it happened. But, you know, I don't want to spend all my life kind of correcting and looking backwards either. Without sort of going too much back towards that, but when East is East did blow up, did you feel like for Tamasha, like, okay, great, that's a breakthrough. And now maybe we can take our theatre company to another level. And, you know, because, you know, inevitably you want to always evolve and grow. Was there some pushback on that? Did you feel as though, or were you able to grow the way you wanted to? I mean, what was nice, I mean, there were certain things that came out of that. Like, um, it's so, again, it's always to do with individuals. So Brian McMasters, who was at the Edinburgh International Festival, and it was their 50th anniversary of the festival, the 50th anniversary of the partition. So he was literally like, you have a slot, you know, what would you like to do? And so we did A Tainted Dawn. Um, and even Strictly Dandia, you know, he just said, right, you, you can have the thousand seater here at the International Festival. And I'm sure those sort of things still happen, maybe for, you know, they certainly don't happen for me, but they happened for us at that moment. And, you know, I do feel like all our shows that were populist, if you like, you know, 14 songs, Two Weddings and a Funeral, which was the Indian film, Hamab Khan, then Strictly Dandia, Balti Kings, even House of Bilkis Bibi. We did shows on the middle scale. It's not as though East is East was the best thing and everything else pale. It's like some things take the imagination of a, a, a wider group of people, but those shows were as significant to us, you know. Strictly, Dandio was the first Tamasha play I went to see. Was it? Okay. And I remember with my mum and some of my family, and I'd already shown a slight interest in, in acting at that point, and my mum said, go, go and speak to her, go and speak to her. And this was to, 
you know, in pointing towards you. And I was like, no, I'm too scared. I think I was, <laughs> I think I was like, oh, 50, I must have been like 15 or 16. Yeah, must have been about 15. So the lyric, you must have. That's right. Yeah. yeah, because I believe one of my friends was in the car, Jalpa Patel. She was and she was in Grange Hill at the time. I think she may have done. She, she might have done, yeah, 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 yeah. and uh, yeah, we we came to see, and you know, I had already shown, and my mom said, just go and go and speak to, her. you know, she she runs to my show, and I was like, no, no, I, I can't, I'll just, I'll, I'll write to them, I'll write to them, and then that, <laughs> it took me another two years, and then I eventually wrote to, to yeah, you guys. Yeah, well, it can't, it's not always easy to go and speak to people, but no, no, absolutely not. I'd love to know your um, thoughts on our our editor for this podcast is. Um, a DIT on on film and TV, Shabir, shout out Shabir, um, and he's DIT. What does that mean? He, I. What does it stand for? <laughs> I wish I could tell you. I actually, actually. didn't know because I've just come off a shoot, and I obviously now it just okay it doesn't matter. Shib, it's a don't DIT. don't, don't okay. hate us, but he he does very technical work on set, and he's very good at his job. Okay, and he was he we met him on Good Karma. He, he digital something transfer. Okay. We're going to get in trouble. I think we should I'm move so on. so in trouble. Let's move on. Absolutely. Out, yeah. um, <laughs> but he's very good at what he does. Um, he's very much an advocate for representation in regards mm. to crew. Is that something you guys were aware of when you were putting your shows on with Smasha? Yeah, I mean, we were always trying to elevate. You know, of course, it started with artists and writers and actors and then moved on to, like, designer. Like, Christine used to run a show called Design Direct. So, yeah, we have definitely always tried to sort of do that as much as possible. You know, stage management, hmm. anything that we could possibly do at the time. So. Yeah, very much before it became a buzzword. As yeah, it is but now, I mean, obviously, mentioned. it definitely because we were very much actor, setting up a company, then becoming this, becoming writer. It all kind of became a, a journey. Yeah. So you couldn't say you've done it all. Obviously not. There's a long way to go, you know. Yeah. We have shot through that hour. <laughs> it's gone fast. Um, it's Thank gone. You. It's gone yeah. really quick. It's been such a pleasure to to have you here, but we we can't let you go without our final question that we ask all our guests, Which is? and that is, um, what is your favorite part of the process from an acting perspective? Is it the phone call to say you got the role? Is it the process of doing the role and the work, whether it be on set or on stage, or is it when? the project is complete in terms of it comes out and you see it on telly or it's like the opening night and you're going through the run. Is it a multiple choice, A, B or C? A, B or C. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's, I think it has to be the process of doing the work, definitely, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Why? Um, well, just being in a rehearsal room, finding, and especially when it's going well, like really collaborating, offering. I mean, I always hate press nights. Because I, I just think there's always too much expectation on it. So now I don't put that on it. Whereas when you're younger, you do sort of put, oh, who's in the house and, you know, all of that. Whereas actually I don't read reviews now till after because I had too many painful incidents when you read them at the <laughs> wrong time. <laughs> so, yeah, no, now I just feel, yeah, of course the phone call is exciting. And a lot of actors will say, and I can't pretend, I, sometimes you want to fast forward to, you know, you've done the job. Yeah. Know? But um, no, it's, it's almost like, like the phone call is great and then it it dawns on you oh crap i've actually got to do this yeah yeah so yeah no, i'm feeling like that about evening conversation yeah. <laughs> you know i said it appeals to loads of audiences what if it's empty well listen you've been in the game for so long and that's testament to your talent and your work ethic and so i've no doubt you're going to be fantastic in, in that show we can't wait to to come and see yeah, it definitely. but um thank you so, so that was much. your thank you for coming on to the podcast thank you thank very you. much for inviting me pleasure